1: Hello and welcome to The Mentor, I'm Mark Boris. My guest this week is Masood Naqshbandi, one of the founders of Abyss Solutions, a robotics company that provides automated underwater inspections for things like dams, reservoirs, bridges, ships, hulls, oil and gas platforms, and many, many other places that are typically very, very difficult to inspect. They combine remotely operated underwater vehicles and drones with data analytics to allow their clients to reduce their inspection and maintenance costs. They incorporate things like artificial learning and robotics and optic fiber solutions. Masood has an interesting story. He was born in Afghanistan, but he and his family immigrated to Pakistan because of the civil war at the age of five. When he turned 15, his family immigrated to Sydney. Growing up as a kid, he didn't really have any interest as being a business founder or a business person, and he really looked up to all the great scientists like Newton and Einstein. He ended up at Sydney University. He had three degrees, a Bachelor of Science, a Graduate Diploma in Optics Research, and while doing his PhD in biosensors, he co-founded Abyss Solutions. The idea of starting the business made sense as one of his co-founders was doing a marine robotics PhD at the same time he was, and the uni was getting a lot of funding to develop robotics technology. By the way, they are riding a major wave. It's only logical, therefore, to start a company to benefit both of them. I want to ask Masood about his transition from academic world to the business world, What impact does growing up as a kid in Afghanistan at the age of five, having to escape to Pakistan and leaving Pakistan and coming to Australia at the age of 15, what influence does that have on his decision-making as to where he went in his life? And how can you use innovative science technology to create and run startups in this world? And where do you raise your money? How hard is it to raise money? So let's get into it. Masood Naqshbandi, welcome to The Mentor, mate. Thanks, thanks Mark, thanks for having me. And, uh,
0: excellent pronunciation of the last name. <laughs> <Good onion.
1: laughs> well got to, I got I I try to get things right the first time. it's an unusual name. So I guess we've got to tell everybody where you're from and give us a little bit of history about your uh where you're from and how you landed here. Yeah, in sure. Australia that is.
0: Yeah, it is unusual, like even uh, from back where I'm from, uh, which is Afghanistan. So Wow. Yeah, I was born in Kabul, Afghanistan. Um and I left Kabul uh when I was five years old. Um due to the war that was going on there, which is very well documented, I guess. And then I uh, immigrated to Pakistan. I lived there as an immigrant. Well, pretty much my whole life has been in, as an immigrant. I lived there for 10 years. And then after 15, I moved to Australia and haven't looked back. So uh, it's been great.
1: It's interesting. We rarely get, definitely not on the show, but we really are people that we have. no one's ever met, uh, someone from Afghanistan um, via Pakistan. Um, and particularly Kabul, but more importantly, through the troubles. Um, Sometimes I wonder when people come through troubles, whether or not um, that has an influence on their outcomes as to what they do. Can you remember being a five-year-old in Kabul?
0: Oh yeah, I do remember. I mean, of course, I don't remember everything, but uh, it was a very traumatic time uh, growing up and because it was in the midst of the civil war and there was a lot happening. Uh, the Russians had just pulled out of the country, so it was chaos. So that, that's interesting. Can I just
1: stop here? Because that's, I, I mean, I'm, I love these stories. Um, for those listening, because um, initially Russia was in Afghanistan. Yeah. And then um, the Americans decided that they didn't like the idea that Russians were in Afghanistan because Af- um, the Russians obviously were getting a foothold, similar to what they'd been doing in Syria more recently. Mm. But as soon as the Russians pulled out, the Taliban and everybody else in Afghanistan just started to fight each other.
0: Yeah, I mean, the Taliban came a bit after, so they were like the second generation that came after. But at that time, all the kind of Mujahideen groups, as they were known, and they were backed by different uh, kind of, you know, external proxies. And and they were all together fighting the Russians. So once the Russians left, and it was like free fall, it's like, go take whatever you can. And unfortunately, during that time, you know, all the destruction of Kabul happened and pretty much the city was reduced to rubble and a lot of the population left, including us.
1: Why? We, what, 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 what? When you say it was reduced to rubble, is, I mean, uh, are we talking li- about... War, it was, war, no, war, it was
0: literally like reduced to rubble. Like, like... like even our own house was hit by rockets, so...
1: Right. Yeah. And what, 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 do you remember any of that?
0: Yeah, I remember that. I remember like us, um, you know, as a family, uh, you know, hiding in our home houses, you know, bunker or what do you call it like Uh, a cellar the cellar yeah yeah Uh, we were just there surviving Uh, i remember like being there and i remember you know you know the firing happening and you know the bombs falling and and you know even like looking at injured people uh, that were just roaming the streets
1: can i ask you this do you feel as though and i'm not trying to get a sad sob story but Mm -hmm. do you feel as though to to some extent that you may have suffered some sort of trauma from it all? I mean, do you, I mean, do you feel like, because I mean, we're Australian, we, we, we don't ever experience that sort of stuff, yeah. okay? Well, but we I'm did recently, curious. there was
0: uh, you know shortage of toilet paper. Very traumatic.
1: It was Very traumatic. <laughs> was very traumatic. traumatic. Well, in some of those uh, supermarkets, it looked like it was traumatic for some of the people. No, they were, uh, it fighting was a war zone. <laughs> but like, I mean, do you feel, do you have any, uh, you know, remainder scars or, 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 do you have nightmares or anything like that or is it, you're all cool, you're lucky?
0: Um, I wouldn't say I have any kind of, you know, cars as, as, as you call it or uh, nightmares as such that has affected my life and of course what's happened is part of my life and it's shaped who I am and you know how I think and how I act as a person uh, I think those kind of things give you perspective in life as well like especially when you come to a country like Australia where we're so blessed to have you know peace first and foremost you know security um, you know just law and order it, it gives you an appreciation for that and you want to do your best uh, because a lot of people in my situation, a lot of kids in my situation didn't make it out of there. Yeah, it gives you perspective, it makes you thankful for what you have and it makes you want to work harder. Um, to you know, not because you don't feel like you just owe it to yourself. It feels like you owe it to, you know, your family, your relatives and, you know, everybody who's left behind. How do you get out of how do you get
1: out of Afghanistan? I mean, how how did you get from Afghanistan to Pakistan? Um, like, what's the process? Do you go through the where Pakistan and India meet that, what's it, the Khyber Pass? The Khyber
0: Pass. Yeah, yeah. that's the, the border of Afghanistan and yeah. Pakistan. Yeah, so we went through the Khyber Pass, and uh, I, I don't know if, 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 if people know, but that's a very historic pass. Totally. You know, like Alexander the Great's army has gone through it, and you know, a whole bunch. And in India and Pakistan still fight over it. Yeah, it's a strategic uh, area. So the it's the one of the main passes through the mountain area of the Hindu Kush there.
1: Do you remember walking through there or how, did you go through so a we bus t- or no, truck? No, yeah, we took a
0: bus. Um, I remember bits of it. Of course, I was five, so I don't remember everything. But yeah, the road leading up to it, because it's a mountainous road, uh, it was not in a good shape. Yeah, so yeah so it, I can imagine. Yeah, because the idea wasn't as how my parents tell the story is that we said, oh, you know, fighting is getting intense, you know, let's just go over the border to Pakistan. Uh, we're gonna stay there for a week. Things will cut down, quite down, and then we'll come back. Uh, that was uh, 25 years ago. <laughs> wow. We haven't
1: been back. And literally, we took nothing. It was just the clothes on our back, and you know. How's that work? Like, how do you survive in those situations? I mean, what did your dad do? What did, was what, what did your dad do? I mean, my, mom. my
0: dad was uh, so my dad's an artist. Uh, yep. So he paints. Uh, he was uh, working at the university. He was a lecturer, uh, and you know, he was an artist. So he painted, uh, you know, and he worked uh, at you know different publications as well so he had a good job and my mom was a teacher she was a school teacher high school teacher also an arts teacher um so yeah they i mean if like i'm talking about how it affected me it affected them way like a different scale than you can imagine because they had to leave everything they had to leave their job their careers their family their friends everything behind so it was much more traumatic for them i assume than it was for me as a kid, as a five-year-old.
1: And you said a bit earlier, mean, which is sort of the thing that I'm curious about, because my my dad was in a similar situation. He left Greece during the civil war, and I often wonder about how it forms outcomes for individuals. So you said earlier that that whole process, to some extent, had some relationship into into who you are today, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So I mean, apart from the fact you feel like you know you want to work and you're happy to work and you. You feel um, duty bound to work, work hard. That is. Um, how do you think it affected you in terms of your who you are today, who Masood is today, into ter- being a scientist and you know doing your running your business. How did that help you along that journey?
0: Yeah, that's a very good question and kind of very deep question. To un- to that's answer. what we like. We like a deep answer too. <laughs> well, the science part and the reason why I took science. I don't think that had much to do with my background because, uh, as like as far as I can remember, when even, like I, I always wanted to be a scientist, always curious, I always used to you know play around with things, try to break things apart, put them back together, just generally curious about uh, about life and the universe and how things happen and why did things happen. So I think that was kind of my innate nature, um, and then luckily I had this opportunity to pursue that career. As how it's shaped me as a person. Um, I think, like I mentioned, that's probably the most important thing is giving me perspective. So I would say I won't get too excited if something good happens. You know, I won't get too sad if something bad happens because I've seen, you know, the extreme of what bad is. Um, and especially it, it's very important in the startup world and in the business world because there's ups and downs on a daily basis. And if you're not kind of emotionally, you know, stable and you have, you know, a bigger outlook, on what's happening and where you're going and you know a lot of people can just give up or they can you know uh it'll be like oh it's too hard i'm just gonna go to an easy life um but it, it, that kind of perspective is giving me okay that's bad but it's nothing compared to what i've already been through that's very it interesting you, it gives you kind of spectrum right you know running startups is hard like running any <laughs> business is hard right it's not it's not an easy job but a lot of people complain it's like oh i can't believe you know i don't have my weekends i don't have this i don't have that and i always say to them look you're doing this because you're in a position of privilege like you chose first of all to start a business and you had the privilege to choose it you are running it and you have all this support you know all this community and you know the venture funds and all that just for you to succeed so i mean if you really don't want to do it, then don't do it walk away but like don't complain that it's hard because you have an incredible privilege to be able to have your own startup or have your own business and to run it. Um, because a lot of people would like to be in that position who have no opportunity and they are barely trying to make and meet. I mean, that's the real struggle.
1: That's actually refreshing you say that to our listeners because there's two common themes that I find in startups. People, for example, trying to complete a higher degree, mm. a postgraduate degree, for example. The two themes are, One is the first thing that you just mentioned, that is you're always confronted with challenges and you either say it's too hard all the time and you you end up dropping out, giving away. Or the second theme is you just, as you say, you say, look, I'm really lucky to be doing this and therefore I'm just going to keep going no matter what. And I used to put it down to a level of maturity. That is some people are more mature than others, but I think our maturity comes as a result of our experiences in life and if we can put it down to privilege, like you just said, based on what you didn't have or what you saw mm. growing up, um, that's one way of getting a level of maturity. Another way is, you know, you're just older and you have a better <laughs> yeah, perspective. Enough. You know, you might be 35 or 40 and just sort of say, oh, well, look, when I was 25, I would never have done this. But a lot of people listening to this now um, would be at that point where the challenges, they feel the challenges are too great and that they feel like are giving it away. And those challenges I'm talking about are things like, oh, my friends are all going out Friday night. They're I can't go out Friday night. Yeah. I don't mean economic challenge. I mean, that's one of them. But the, I'm talking about, say, social challenges. Or even sometimes you're faced with moral challenges as well. And moral challenges yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah, t- totally. Yeah. So have, have you come... Well, before I go into that, because I actually want to talk about that stuff, but can I just go back to your education? So you came here when you were 15, 16? I Austria. was 15. Came to Sydney? Yeah, I yeah. came to Sydney. And... Uh, you went to school, obviously. So uh, where'd you go to school?
0: I went to Pendle Hill High School. Pendle
1: Hill and that's uh, year ten, I guess, year or something. 10, yeah. yeah. And then at some stage in year twelve, you start well beginning year 12, at year eleven you started thinking to yourself, Well, why wouldn't mind going to university?
0: Oh, uh, yeah. No, I mean I come from a very educated background, like family wise speaking. So I've always they've always like pushed, you know, that you, know, you have to go to uni, you have to get an education. So they've always my parents have always instilled that in me, that you have to get educated. And you have to, you have this opportunity. So they told me like you have to get as, high as education as possible as you possibly can. Um, so that was always the agenda. And I, I just liked science. So that's what I wanted to pursue. I wanted to be a scientist. That was my dream.
1: So then you got into the university, Sydney University? Yeah. Into a bachelor of science? Yes. Yeah. And what did you specialize in?
0: So I did uh, chemistry, physics in my undergrad. And then in my master's, in my postgrad, I, I did um, re- by research optics. So... That includes everything to do with light, so lasers, optical fibers, um, things of that nature. Especially the project I was working on, and actually turned out to be quite a, a good project. Uh, you know, we published a paper in Nature, which is probably the top general. Um, well, I think you should world.
1: explain what that means because p- people listening just don't understand the importance of publishing something in that. Well, one, they don't understand the importance of publications. Yeah, yeah. that that's important in itself. Yeah. But to get it in Nature, that's pretty important because that's one of the top. Science, yeah, and it is. science publications. So, yeah,
0: so, I, I guess so. Let me then backtrack a bit. Explain exactly what I was working because on. this is and all
1: this is all the stuff to build must up to who he is in terms of having the confidence to go and take on his startup.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, just to backtrack a bit. So, the project I was working on was very multidisciplinary project, and it was at um, at a center and University of Sydney called Interdisciplinary Photonics Laboratories. So it contained a bit of everything. It had, you know, material science, chemistry,
1: f- uh, photonics, lasers. Material science means understanding the uh, behavior of a, of a piece of metal or, or a bit of material. Exactly. Basically, yeah. yeah, it's either understanding new
0: material or developing new material. Mm-hmm. So new plastics, new, you know, glasses, uh, basically any material that you can build from and use. Um, I guess bad examples, but those are the ones I But it could even be, you know, uh, things that carry drugs within your body. It could be things that you build aircrafts with. So it, it, it basically, any material that we're dealing with was engineered or science um, in the laboratory. So that's material size of it. So I was working on that and I. So I'm pretty sure all the listeners are aware what the optical fiber is because that's how they get the uh, internet these days, uh, at least to their... You got an right. At least to their, uh, you know, street, if not to their do- uh, modem. So that is kind of the backbone of today's uh, communication system of the world, optical fibers, how you get the internet. Um, so the way these optical fibers are made at the moment uh, are made, you know, by melting glass at 2000 degrees Celsius. Which makes it very difficult to then incorporate other things into these glasses.
1: Is that because the other things melt?
0: Yeah, other things melt. It's high temperature. Yeah. very high temperature. Yeah. Two thousand degrees. So you can only glass can survive there. But you can use these optical fibers for other applications as well, like for example sensing, right? Because you're carrying light through it, right? So you can use it for remote sensing. You can put it down a borehole in an oil well. You can use it, you know, endoscopy with, uh, you know, people know what that is. That's an optical fiber. That's imaging you
1: are. I had an, I oh, had an had? endoscopy, uh, endoscopic procedure oh, on Monday. Wow. Yeah, how was it? It was fine. Yeah. Well, I don't know that they've taken some biopsies. I don't know. I haven't got the result yet, but no, hopefully it goes well. So there you go. You use optical fiber. So, so because I need to understand that because so you're saying that the, um, optical fiber, which is a, which is sort of like the camera. It
0: is. It is a light carrier. Yeah. So it's called a waveguide in scientific terms. It means right. it carries light. Right. Right. So how really? does it sense? Okay, so sensing is the light itself does not sense. So sensing is when you dope it, as we call it, with other chemicals, right? At the end of it, right. So at the end yeah. of the, cable, at the end of the fiber itself, yeah. you dope it with something else, yeah. and then that chemical which detects, senses
1: detects something.
0: Detect something. Yep. Whether it's biological, whether it's bacteria, whether it's like other chemicals in the air, whether it's whatever it is, it detects it. And that signal is then um, passed on w- through the optical fiber through um, a mechanism where you can, you know, which is why you need the light. Now, optical fiber sensors, as we know, these optical fibers can go for kilometers and kilometers and kilometers, right? So that means you can do remote sensing now. It means you can send something that's kilometers away by sitting at your desk, by having these sensors there.
1: Or you can send it down a well, as you, you say. You can send it, down. You can send it to the
0: bottom of the ocean. Exactly. So there, these are the places. Or you can send it inside yourself. Right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So these are the things you can do with it. So these are manufactured at 2,000 degrees. makes it very difficult to incorporate any other sensing material on top of it. Now the methodology that we created in our lab which is kind of my core project uh, was to develop these uh, optical waveguides these optical wires as we call them because they were small so they were not kilometers long but the tip it was the tip of the whole thing yep. at room temperature and they self assemble themselves from silica nanoparticles so silica nanoparticles is very tiny tiny beads of glass and when you self assemble them it means they come together and form a wire by themselves just through evaporation, through normal, you know, atmospheric uh, phenomena. So that was revolutionary because now you can not only put, you know, things that were previously unattainable, like organics, in there, but you can also put a quantum emitter which emits a single photon at a time. So a photon is a single unit of light. Mm-hmm. One single unit of light. One single. So it could emit a single unit of light, and we could detect that. So this discovery had multiple different effects and for technology. And that's why the important, like kind of the overall discovery of this, which would have enabled so many different things, was why it was so important that it got published in in Nature.
1: So you 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 published this with your colleagues? Yeah. How how many how many people on the publication? I think we had, if I remember correctly, four or five. There's always there's always your supervisor, etc. Oh yeah, of course. So I had two
0: supervisors <laughs> that were they there. They always go first. I had a colleague in University of Melbourne, uh, so he did some of the experiments on the single Who did, my, uh, photon. Who did the heavy
1: lifting, though? Did you? So I,
0: was the, uh, so I was the primary author
1: of this okay. paper. And then what happened when, when others read it?
0: Well, they, so what happens in scientific, and this is probably leads to why I started a startup and left academia, is that for they sure. read it and you know, they cite their work. So I think it's, I haven't checked recently, but it's pretty well cited. So citation, for those of you who don't know, means someone reads the article and then you
1: know uses that, for their work or uses it as inspiration or uses, that and, and uses it. And uses you as an authority on a particular aspect of something yeah. they might be writing so, about. So, yeah.
0: So, in scientific publication, citation of a paper is like that metric that you use to calculate. It's like how much money you made in business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, if you get more citation, it means it's widely read and it's more influential. Yeah, yeah. Saying. If it's not cited by anyone, it means nobody read your paper and you wasted your time.
1: Yeah, well, it does mean if you are getting cited that it was a very valuable and important paper. Yeah.
0: Well, in like, uh, in terms of if you want to like do career progression or whatnot, then yeah, it, yeah, it citations but, is important. But scientifically speaking, you know, any discovery you make, any work that you publish is, of course, has its own value. But in terms of the scientific, you know, career part and the politics of it, unfortunately, citations and publication means a lot. There's a saying in uh, you
1: know in academia that publish or perish. Is there anything about cite? Publish or perish. I get that, but what about the uh, si- if you're not cited? I don't know. I I haven't heard that. You're out of sight. <laughs> God,
0: that's a good one. Maybe we'll use that. For, not uh, cited, out of sight. Not cited, out of
1: sight. Okay, well, because I do want to move. In. We're gonna we'll go for the break, then I want to come back because I think it was important to be, for us to build up your story, to be honest with you, and um and what you did at university. Because I mean, this is clearly you know academia is an important plays an important role in terms of science because you, you can't become a scientist unless you've actually done the, the basics and also the the next level of basics, you know, the, the postgrad studies. And if you're going to do a startup, you have to actually discover something or found something or work something with authority, which mm-hmm. is really important, which is why I wanted to talk about the publication. Yeah. And I'm glad you also talked about the citation because if someone's trying to actually build a career and or a startup in relation to science, this is one path. This is one natural path. Mm-hmm that they should consider taking. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so glad I was able to get you in here today, because, you know, you've gone through what I would consider to be an absolutely natural path for a scientist to establish a startup.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely.
1: We'll go to the break, and then I want to talk about what the startup's all about, why you decided to leave academia and go on to commercialization. And by the way, it's interesting that... Um, your parents, both academics and teachers, and went to university, and or um, a lecturer in your dad's case. So it's interesting that you, you've gone there, but you're gone straight into business now, yeah. and uh, and at a young age yeah. too. Yeah, I always say like I'm the black sheep of the family because my whole family is artistic
0: and you know that way inclined, and I'm the only scientific minded person there you
1: sound like you're diametrically opposed to being right. in the artistic world but, all, but all, all,
0: a, all of this is creative yeah so I was actually going to make the same point I think that in when you do great science it almost has artistic beauty to yeah it. it's creative um, yeah. even if it's you know um, an equation I think it was Einstein or it might, it might have been Stephen Hawking I can't remember who but they said you know I know an equation is correct because it looks beautiful
1: yeah that's true I'm back from the break and I'm here with Masood and we've just been talking about the build-up of his life and, and importantly, how we ended up doing the startup called Abyss. And we're going to talk about what Abyss is in a second, but what's really important, I just want to underline this. This is about science and in order to do science, I mean, I often talk about university degrees, the importance of it in small business, but in science, you must have a university degree. You must have done the basics. You've got to know the technology and understand the the technical side of everything. So that's why it was important from my point of view to go through this process. And by the way, for all those people who think I don't believe in university or edu- higher education, absolutely do. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have this, I have you know, higher education and postgraduate degrees myself. But what I'm, I have been saying is for a small business owner, you don't need it. Sometimes you're better off just going to small business. But when you go to something like technical, like science, you must have it. So, Masood, can you tell me now why... You decided academia um, was now to be replaced by commercialization of an idea. And how did that idea for a Abyss come about? Can you remember the day we actually sitting down and think, hang hey, on, I could actually turn this into a business? Yeah.
0: You can? Yeah. Can you tell me about it? So I started the business with uh, four co founders. Well, there's four of us, so three other co founders. And um, so the other co founders being Nasser, Ibrahim, uh, and Hina. And Nasser and Ibrahim, so us three of us, we were at the University of Sydney, we were all like buddies there. Uh, we used to hang out at lunch and talk. And we used to, we we were all, you know, research focused. We were all doing a postgraduate degrees and doing research on various different things. Uh, so I was doing like optics and sensors. Uh, Nasser was doing machine learning and robotics. So he's kind of, you know, the main driver behind this. And then Ibrahim was, um, you know, he was doing a civil engineering degree. So we were always talking about it. And me and Nasser were kind of fed up with the academic system uh, because it's, it's great in a way that, you know, it's purely scientific and you do their research. But in terms of, you know, bringing things out back to the market, right? Because you do science, at least the kind of the science we were doing was very applied, right? Like you're developing sensors, you're developing robots, you're developing algorithms. These are things that are not to be kept on the bookshelf. These are things that need to be brought out. In the commercialization part through university was very difficult. I mean, I didn't even know what startup was or what business or what company was until I started my postgraduate degree. And the group I was working on, uh, the interdisciplinary photonics laboratory, they had a very good uh, track record of spinning off companies. And my supervisor had already spun off, I think, three or four companies.
1: Your supervisor being one of the senior lecturers or a professor or something like that? Yeah, he
0: was a professor at the University of Sydney. Um, So that's when I first heard about, oh, this work we're doing, you can actually make it into a commercial reality. And the idea was not to make it a commercial reality so that you can make money out of it. It's like I worked on it so much, like I don't want to just leave it. I want people to use it now. I want, you know, the benefit to go back to the society. Did you apply for scholarships and things like that? Yeah, so I had scholarships during the the time I was doing my postgraduate research. Uh, I was lucky enough to have, you know, multiple scholarships.
1: It's important to get scholarships in your postgrad too. Yeah, otherwise, uh, It's it's good to have scholarships behind your name.
0: And then uh, my Nasser was at the same, uh, you know, position. He was doing his degree. And he, actually, his center, which is Australian Center of Field Robotics, uh, was getting a lot of money from industry, from mining companies, so on and so forth, to, you know, develop these systems. So we kind of got together and said, look, uh, you know, industry is paying all this money to develop these systems, to develop these robots, Uh you know, and the university was so slow in developing that. Why don't we, you know, spin it off, like make our own company? We had no idea about how to do that. We just knew we needed to bring this out to the market. So we said, okay. So you know, you're working on the robotics algorithm side, and I'm working on the sensor side. And basically, what a robot is, it's a
1: vehicle to carry sensors, right? Mm. Because the sensor on its own doesn't. Is worth jack shit unless you have something to get it to where it's got to go to.
0: Exactly where yeah. to go to, and the robot by itself is, it's is meaningless yeah. because it, can it can't do it, anything. It it's can't dumb. do anything. Yeah. So the combination of these two, and then the kind of the algorithms to then perceive these things, right, and then to make sense of it and to make decision, that's where it makes it autonomous. That's what makes it smart. So like a smart car, like a not smart, what do you call it? autonomous car did it right? It's a car has a bunch of sensors on it. The hardwares interact with each other, and there's the algorithm behind that drives. So we said, all right, let's, let's do that. Um, so we were both at the end of our research contracts. When we finished, it was 5th of November 2014 is when we registered business. But we've been talking about this for like months beforehand. And we said, all right, let's do it. And we got Ibrahim on board because we're like, all right, we're going to make this robot it has to do something. What does it need to do? Well, we can use it for engineering purposes, structural engineering purposes, surveys, inspections, so on and so forth. And hence, uh, you know, a big solution was born. And we had no idea, like I mentioned, how to run a business. So we were just looking around. And actually, we got good advice from a very a good mentorship very, from very early on. Uh, one of our physics professors at the University of Sydney, she was running a kind of workshop for academics on how to look at business and startups. We went there and that was our first ex, you know, exposure to this kind of approach. And then we got into Incubate, uh, which is a Sydney University run incubator. For young businesses off the uh, University of Sydney, professionals.
1: Could you explain something for you Does the university take a percentage of that, or they just they no, just house you?
0: No, they 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 just uh, house, house your idea here. Yeah, they house your idea. Uh, there's like some kind of legal stuff there, and you know, how much you raise, and you have to give them something back, but it's very, it's very little. It's, yeah, uh, yeah, They don't take person. They don't take equity in the company. And then we got into Muridi, which is a Telstra-backed accelerator. Yep, and that's where we got kind of the commercial exposure we were like exposed to you know different investors we were exposed to you know clients we were exposed to lawyers accountants like all the shebang that comes with startups and that kind of really accelerated our growth Um, and then we at that same time we secured a a big contract at the time with sydney water where we did our first project uh, which was a autonomous canal inspection so anyone who has you know Uh, flies out of uh, the airport, Sydney airport, we've seen a canal right next to the airport. So we...
1: That's the Cook River or the Cook River Canal. Yeah, just at the end of the Cook River.
0: goes up all the way um, to Alexandria. Right. So that that four-kilometer canal we inspected and created, uh, you know,
1: we digitized it pretty much. We created 3D models of it and gave an engineering report on it. So can I just stop you there because this is your product, okay? So for those of you from Sydney, there is a canal that runs so many kilometers outside right near Sydney airport. Um, So... The three parts to your business is, A, is the robotics. So you must have put some sort of machine in the bottom of the canal. It's got a sensor. Oh, a floater. Which, okay, it's a floater. It's on top of the water. So that's the civil engineering part and the robotics part. That's your two mates. And then you put the sensor on there somewhere. The imagery, yeah. And then someone also then built um, algorithms or formulas or recipes mm-hmm. to be able to determine all the things that you're looking at under the water. It was mainly above water, above water uh, okay. but there was some underwater. Okay, so, well. and then what you're trying to do is learn from that. So you, you want the machine to learn things and give, give outcomes. Yeah. Is that, that what the client
0: wants? Uh, well, I mean, that's kind of the back end of what we wanted to do because what we learn from doing this inspection, kind of our IP. So that's where we generate the IP. What the client wants and the end is they want to know, like, is my canal in good shape or not? Yeah, yeah. That's
1: Which what do you mean by good shape though? Is it
0: like, like of is it falling or? yeah, literally is it falling apart yeah, yeah, or right. is it still there? Because it's a heritage listed canal as well, so oh, it's very right. valuable. And actually we did find a place, you know, where it was about to fall apart and they had to go and take immediate action on it, with you know, saving millions of dollars. Um so that's the value to the end client. Now to your point, let me explain what the business is and what the core what, the, what the core part of it is. So at Abyss Solutions. What we are doing is we, in very simple terms, is we are automating the way work is done. We are automating industry. We're doing that by creating both hardware, so robots, but also the intelligence, the AI, that powers these robots to do their work. Or even if the robot's not required, even if it's just desk work, like, go, like for example, analyzing you know sewer videos that we get. There's like kilometers, like hours and hours of videos where some poor guy sits there in a dark room. Goes really like oh yeah that looks good there's a crack that's good that's crack. that's automated now.
1: So your soft your program so presumably you guys have built a program yeah. that can actually recognize the images mm-hmm. and then because of your the ability to learn machine learning mm-hmm. you can then um, make make and draw conclusions.
0: Yeah, so just to talk about the technology bit, so what uh, what you're referring to is uh, what we call a uh, computer vision machine learning algorithm. Mm. Basically, what that is, is that it looks at different images or it looks at any image. Uh, let's just give a basic example. And then it can identify different aspects of that image and classify it. For example, if I were to take a picture of this room, you know, the algorithm can then go and say, yeah, that's a chair, that's a chair, that's a person, that's a person. Now, in order to enable the algorithm to do this, first you need to have the actual algorithm itself, which is, you know, what you learn at the university. But then the other part of this is, the training part of it. So these are called machine learning algorithms. You have to teach them because they learn. They're like a baby. They're like a child. So how do you teach a child? Well, you know, they have different crayons. You say, oh, that's blue color. That's red color. That's blue color. That's red color. So you give them examples. You teach them. Yeah. So if you give them enough examples, then they will learn, right? If you show them enough pictures of chairs, then they will know what a chair is. But the trick, and this is what makes us different, is the way we teach the algorithm, right? So... If you just show it this kind of chair, it will only know that's a chair. When you show it that chair like a different color chair, it will not know that's a chair because it's never seen it before. So, to make these algorithms robust and good, you need to give it lots of examples. But those examples need to be varied enough so it can have a, a you know, a good sample spectrum where it can identify it. So, this is the work we do. This is the kind of the brains behind it and that in combination with the robotics part of it makes the intelligent system that can automate work. So I will give you an example. Right now we're doing a lot of work on offshore oil and gas platforms, where typically they would send like you know tens of people, you know, to go with notepads and see, oh, there's corrosion there, so corrosion is rust. Oh, there's rust there. There's rust on that pipe. We need to fix it. But it's very mm. subjective, right? Because it, what a human can see is, rust right, depending on your mood, almost you know, depending on your eyesight, depending on lots of different things. But a computer will never make a mistake as long as the data is good enough because it's objective. It makes consistent prediction all, all the time. That assumes, of course, the thing that it's looking at is in the
1: universe of things it's been trained. Exactly.
0: To look at. So it's yeah, if if it's trained well, then it will pick it yeah, up. Yeah. Now the problem with manual analysis is, and this is not just you know with uh, you know detecting corrosion on platform is any kind of repetitive work, is I think IBM did a study where they said you know if you make a human do an analysis for you know fifteen minutes, after fifteen minutes, their accuracy drops down by like seventy percent. Wow. So, Machine's
1: always accurate though.
0: Well, machine doesn't get tired. There's yeah. no subjectivity. Yeah. They, they can't be hungover. They can't be tired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just very... Or bored. Yeah, or bored. And most of the work we're doing is, is, is either two things. It's either really boring or it's, it's very um, you know, dangerous in most aspects.
1: So let's like, just have interest like uh, when you're inspecting a, a rig, mm-hmm. an oil rig. Are you talking about above the water? Above yeah, above. So above. we do above water and below water. So what what, what what's the robot look like? I mean, like, what, it, yeah, sure. what's that look like? Is yeah. it like some little thing crawling okay. up the so scaffold?
0: So on the top side, so we're not up to that stage where we have robots that are it. So on the top side, because it's easily accessible and it's safer, you can still have people going there with camera. And so instead of having like 10 people, now you have two guys with a camera and they take imagery. Just filming it, yeah. And then the imagery gets analyzed. Yep. Now when it goes to subsea, there yep. we, we use robots. Yeah. So those subsea robots are called ROVs, remotely operated vehicles. Yep. And they are pretty much look like a box, which have, you know, six propellers on it. And they can be small, like tabletop, or they can be giant, like the size of this room. Hmm. And they get deployed by these big ships. And they're tethered to the top station, and then you control it as camera. And this is where our sensors come into it as well, because we've developed a specific camera just for subsea inspections. Because if as you can probably appreciate that when you're underwater, it's not as easy to photograph as you are above water because you have no light, you know, the water attenuates the signal so you can't see very far away, you don't have true color, so on and so forth. But all these things are very important when the algorithm is using this for analysis. So we looked into the market because we're like, is there something available? No, it wasn't. So we had to develop our own camera for so you're not using special. anyone
1: else's proprietary stuff. You've got your own cameras. We have our own cameras. And
0: with that not only we can go and image things and analyze them but we can also then create 3D models of it. So digitalization and digital twinning is a big buzzword in the industry these days. everyone's doing it, right? Basically what it means is is that you create a realistic version of the a photorealistic version in 3D of the asset on your computer screen. So now, instead of me having to go offshore, which is very dangerous and costly exercise, I can just you know open up my computer and look at the three D model and see where what's wrong, what's good, uh, where I need to go, how big is this nut, how big is this bolt? Because it's dimensionally accurate as well the way we collect
1: the data. So it takes a, a, an image of the the nut or the bolt, but it actually takes it when it's doing the three D imaging. It actually takes the proper size.
0: It takes the proper size because it's it's stereo imagery, right? So it's, it's, and then we also combine it with the laser scan as well to give you even more precise, uh, you know, measurements. So you put a laser on it, which means um, you can actually draw it as it is. So the computer like generates that automatically. Yeah. It's called a point cloud, right? Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, that's the, your digital twin on your, on your computer screen. And where does all this data go? I mean, where, where, where does it all
1: hang out? Like, uh, I mean, do you get access to it or is it hanging oh, yes. out for the client? Or?
0: No, so of course it's client's data. So yep. they
1: have access to it, but we host and store all the client's data. So as do well. you protect it as well? Of course, you yeah. secure it. Yeah, I mean, is that part? Of, but is that part of your um mandate? To, is to secure? Oh, yeah, it? yeah, because um, as you can sensitive. appreciate, like these offshore oil rigs, they're very sensitive totally.
0: assets, and in most cases, um, you know, some of them are not private; they're government-owned, so they're even more stricter. And in those cases, they don't even want the data to be hosted outside the country. Yeah, and even if you work with uh, water infrastructure, again, that's you know very sensitive assets. Uh, you know, the water of a country depends on it. Yeah, totally. They're very careful about that as well. So, yeah, we have very strict, you know, so guidelines. You, uh, in Abyss, um, how many people we you got there now? Uh, we have about 30 now. 30. And yeah. you locate here in Sydney? Uh, so Headquarters in Sydney. Uh, we have an office in um, Houston in, in the US, which is actually I'm based. It's by coincidence that I'm here because of this lockdown loss. Uh, but generally, I'm based out of Houston as well with Nasser, our CEO, and then we have kind of partner and satellite offices in the UK,
1: uh, UAE, Pakistan, and also uh, Nigeria. So the, the complete package here is though, not only will you sense the data, you'll analyze the data, but you store the data as well. Or yeah. you, you host the storing of the data, yeah. which probably ends up in a data center somewhere, but, and you secure it as well. Yeah. So that that's pretty important stuff. So your team would have you, you obviously cybersecurity people involved in your business. Yeah. So I mean, we have uh, external
0: or internal? No, we have internal. Yeah. So our capabilities are mainly internal, except like very low level tasks. We outsource, but all the kind of core IP and security and infrastructure, it's all internal. Uh, but it's it's a very important point that you mentioned that hosting all this data, because the business we're in, the data is your key advantage, mm. right? The machine learning algorithms for machine learning. Because the more data you have, it means you've exposed your your algorithm mm. to more examples. That means it gets better and you stay ahead of the competition. So if you have data on one platform, you're good. But if you have data on 10 platforms, you're like 10 times better. So if I could just go
1: back. So when, when you're, you you and your two partners decided mm. to build Abyss and you know, you've know got your 30 people sort of located around the world in various places and you got your clients, you got your jobs, at what point did you go out and find any... Um, Investors, yeah. So, w- where did that happen? So, our first investor was uh, Murudi. Um, Murudi, yeah. So, that was the accelerator, the yeah. test,
0: uh, Telstra accelerator. And then, our first kind of major round of investment happened in 2000, early 2017 from a venture capital firm. Um, and we raised about a million
1: dollars. Yeah, and, and how did you because people listening to this were sort of thinking, so, wow, well, well, how do you get a, bi- a big first rounder up? Um, forget mm. about Murudi for the moment because mm. that's they're just sort of just trying to give you a leg up. A bit like your first major investor. Yeah. How did you go about that? Well, uh, we did a demo, there
0: pitch at Moridi, and yeah. uh, we were raising money, so we put it out there. And, of course, during this time of moridi like I mentioned, we were exposed to different kind of investors all the time. And, you know, we had a good story, and ev- who doesn't want to be involved in robotics and AI and all that. So, yeah, we had a discussion uh, after the Muridi demo night. They were interested, and, you know, we were raising. So, we continued the discussion, and, yeah, it was a good fit. And So, you raised million dollars. Have you had any more rounds? So we had a kind of a follow-up run, a bridge run, which was only a few hundred thousand dollars. But now we are about to close our Series A run, uh, which is going to be about 5 million. Uh, So that's a growth run because now we're getting a lot of traction in the oil and gas sector uh, and we're going to be doing a lot more work. So we need this to grow not only our sales force, but also our operations. Um, So we were always of the opinion that, we will raise money to grow, not to survive. And we've never raised a single dollar to survive. Um, and my advice would be to everybody else who's listening is like, don't do that because you get into that bad habit. Um, you, because you need to run...
1: Keep tap uh, in the market.
0: Yeah, it's like, um, you know, okay, I run out of money, I'm going to get some more. It's, first, well, you dilute, don't like that anyway. Yeah, I mean, first you dilute yourself, but other thing is you're not creating a sustainable company, which is what it's all about. Um, and that's what
1: investors want too. They, they yeah. don't want to get the, – because they know if you've got to go back to tap the market, they're going to get diluted anyway. Exactly. Either that or have got to pony up again. Yeah. So they don't like that. So so your your business now is you – know, about to close another round, but like you, you're presumably well-funded, you've got a good client base, you seem to have the right talent in the business. You're, you're actually in one of those rising tides because, you know, robotics and AI and um, sensing – Everyone in the world wants
0: that. Well, we believe that's the future. So that's why we're in it. Uh, We believe, you know, most of the industry will get automated, automated, and we want to be at the forefront of that. And it's not just oil and gas or water. It's, you know, we have our ambitions on space, travel and space exploration, on, uh, you know, agriculture, on, you know, wind energy, basically any industry you can think of. Automation is going to be the key moving forward, and we want to be at the forefront of that.
1: And who would have thought, uh, I'm lucky I'm sitting here talking to you, because how old are you now? I'm 33 now. 33, Ms. So who would have thought uh, 15 years ago, or a little bit more than 15 years ago, uh, the kid in Pakistan thinking, oh, I'm going to Australia. Where the hell's that? Um, mm. <laughs> what is that like? Um, and then, or, or more importantly, the boy at five years of age escaping Afghanistan, a couple yeah. during a civil war, um, is now doing something on such a, a global scale that is so, uh, I guess, I mean, I don't want to undersell it, but so relevant. Sort of work you do is mm. so relevant. Yeah. I mean, I really mean that in a, in a in a sort of dramatic sense. It's so relevant mm. to the way uh, you can get better outcomes for businesses. Um, and you are now talking about space. Um, you know, I mean, I I'm I'm a little bit intrigued. Mm. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you're not going to get a, a fiber optic cable that's uh, fifty thousand kilometres long. No. So, uh, ha- tell me, what are you thinking about there? Yeah, so are you looking at
0: spaceships, we're looking at the space no, stations. No, we. So um, I mean, it, it's very open, but you know, the one thing we're looking at there is you know rovers. Um, you know, they, you've probably heard you know rovers on Mars. Mm-hmm. So these are autonomous systems. Yep. So there's uh, there's no difference between that rover and the rover we use to inspect canals or inspect you know uh, you know roadways or things like that.
1: Autonomous for for our listeners means there's no one in, sitting. In the, no the one's side controlling, controlling it. Yeah. <laughs> You're doing it here on in, on the land. You're not even doing that. You don't even know that. No, It's autonomous. So complete autonomy
0: means it has that intelligence that I was talking about, that it's making decision by itself. Yep. A remote vehicle is the one where you control remotely. Right. But autonomous is completely autonomous. You give it objectives and it carries out objectives. You don't tell it where to go, what to do. Yep. But um, we have that core capability in our business already. You're building prototypes? Are you, are you putting not yourself yet, we out We are applying for uh, NASA grants um, yeah. to work with them, to develop these systems. But I'll go on a limp and say, you know, developing a robot for subsea is probably more technically challenging than for space. Because wow. in space, nothing leaks. <laughs> there's, yeah. no wa- there's no water. Yeah. There's no gets pressure. Through. There's no pressure either. Yeah. There's no gravity. So, uh, so yeah. like, especially deep sea, right? It's, it's very difficult. Um, very hard engineering. Um, and we have the technical capabilities to deliver that. And going forward, it's not even so much going to be about the hardware itself. Because the hardware, like we're with drones, is all getting commoditized. You can go buy uh, you know, drone for your, you know, you know, for Christmas if you want. hi Christmas. Yeah, JB Hi Fi. But these things only five, ten years ago, were military grade yeah, technologies. Exactly. Like you wouldn't be able to get your hands on it. So the, where this is pointing towards is that hardware is gonna get commoditized. And where the key advantage and the key IP is going to be is in the brains. Mm. You, know, Magi- you don't want a dead body. The algorithms. Yeah, yep. You don't want a dead body, you want the brains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's you gotta control that. So that's with that you can then dominate the market.
1: Because the hardware is just hardware. It's just nuts and bolts at the end of the day. I could talk about this stuff forever, but uh, I always give everybody an opportunity to ask me one question. Mm. Do you have any questions for me?
0: So my question is, you know, right now, you know, we've done one raise and we're doing another one. I would like to get your opinion, your know, thoughts on how to grow a company um, in a non-dilutive way. Like we've, of course, looked at things like, you know, borrowing money from banks and so on and so forth. But if you can give the kind of insights on
1: how to grow and grow fast, but at the same time not dilute as much. There's no there's no uh, um, algorithm that that solves that one. Um, you won't grow fast.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, un- unless you're um, in an industry which is, or say, an online industry where you've got very few costs and every, everything's just walking out the door, and that's sort of like at a retail level. Mm-hmm. You're not at that level. I mean, no. you, you have to invest to get your clients, and therefore to invest, you need to raise money. I I think the issue for you is what I'm getting from this is you don't want to dilute too much. So that comes down to how good you sell, how good you pitch it and how much patience you got in terms of the pitch process. So you've already said to me before that you don't take any money just to survive. In other words, you guys are happy to run lean. You're only young anyway, so you can run lean for as long as possible. So for me, optimizing your level of equity and, and minimizing the amount of dilution is probably the game. And in order to do that, you must be patient. Mm. So, this is like playing cards or gambling. You've got to make sure that the investors don't think you need them, uh, that you want them to need you. And uh, it comes down to how good you pitch. I mean, uh, my gut feeling is you guys, you know, you've got all the credentials, you've got all the academia. You know, you've got your client base, you've got all your prototypes, you've got your uh, re- references, so you're in a position to pitch well. So I think yeah. you need, just need to be able to back yourself yeah. to um, minimize your dilution. So if you think you need, say, $5 million now, if I'm an investor and I think you need that $5 million now, then I'm going to screw the best deal I can because I love your business. Yeah. Okay? Then it's just, it's just a face-off. And just looking at you sitting here, um, you've got a pretty good poker face. And I don't know what your partner's like, but for me, it's about how you pitch. Um, we've got plenty of people who want to invest in this sort of stuff. Only one thing is, is that's outstanding for me as an investor: how desperate is he? Mm. How much does he need it? And you said something really important to me before, and, I, and, and it registered in my head as an investor. We don't. We never go for a round to survive. We only go for growth moment I think I'm investing in you, and I know you, the people I'm investing in, are going to grow this business. In other words, not going to pull any of it out. They're going to grow it. Um, that makes me more, a little bit more desperate to invest. It's about calling someone's bluff. It's about making someone think that you've got a better hand than they have. It's about not making a mistake. In other words, being prepared to pull out. Prepared to walk up. Yeah, I'm prepared to walk away unless I get the deal I want. And you're going to lose some. You're going to miss some as long as you've got enough money in the can right now. And it's just for growth. I mean, yeah. I, I don't, don't get me wrong. You're probably so far ahead of your competition. Unless the competition is about to jump all over you, you probably can just wait a little bit longer because you're young. You want to grow fast. Yeah, take the opportunity. But you won't grow fast without being compromised on your dilution. So which one's more important to you? I have a view in these things, right? I always prefer to dilute. Early mm-hmm. and dilute a lot so I can grow fast immediately. But I've been in retail games where I can't wait around because yeah. someone else will adopt my idea. Because once my stuff gets out there, it's out there. Others will do it. So I, I, I when I had the Wizard Business, I brought Kerry Packer on as my partner for 50% straight away because I took the view the amount of money he was going to put in was a thing I needed to grow really fast, which I did. But maybe you're in a different position. Maybe your technology is so well protected, it's not necessarily something that others can grab hold yeah. of and r- run with.
0: Yeah, the barrier to market is a lot tougher.
1: Tougher, uh, it's, yeah. it's
0: not, uh, you know, you can't just make Like I said, we have a data advantage, right, already and with the algorithms. I mean, people can copy. Of course, anything is copyable, but it's not as easy.
1: It doesn't have the integrity. Because if they copy it, it doesn't have the depth, and it, therefore it doesn't have the integrity, I guess, of the data. That is a good point. Thanks very much. It was awesome. No, it was very very a interesting to no, Thanks a lot.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?